wanted to start by reading something to you. Jerusalem in the 10th century BC is an inhospitable place for farmers, but a strategic location for men on the run. Human settlement in the Judean highlands is sparse. Bands of fugitives, landless laborers, and tax evaders rove the Judean wilderness. These rebel gangs, viewed by the neighboring Egyptians as both, an, as both a nuisance and a threat, maraud the nearby villages. They collect protection money and pillage the locals, making off with their women and their cattle. They terrorize the Philistines and then, in a sudden turnaround, offer their services to a Philistine king in exchange for shelter. Their leader is a wily, resourceful man from Bethlehem who decides that his people are meant for more than lightning raids and mercenary stints. He sends his men to rout an advancing force, then shares the loot with the Highland elders. This wins over the Highlanders, and in time, they make him chieftain of the southern hill area. He takes over the tribal center of Hebron and later captures Jerusalem, another hilltop stronghold. The chieftain moves his extended family to the main homes of the Jerusalem village and settles in one himself, a palace, some might call it, though there's nothing extravagant about it. He rules over a neglected chieftain of pastoralists and outlaws. His name is David. That's from this week's New Yorker, a fascinating article about some current archaeological work trying to reconstruct um, the 10th century, uh, this period that we're looking at. Uh, right now. And it does a good job of setting the stage for where we're going to be these next several weeks uh, as we take a look uh, as David uh, fleeing for his life uh, from Saul. One of the things about the, um, the way we're looking at uh, the life of David this summer, um, uh, I, I intentionally structured it around uh, the Psalms that David wrote. There's many Psalms that uh, identify specific events in David's life that cued the writing of that psalm. We actually haven't been in one of those uh, places where there's a specific psalm that uh, is directly linked to an event like this until this week. And it's a curious thing, isn't it, that Psalm 34, um, which is a classic in which we're going to get to spend some time with, um, is going to be attached to a rather strange text. Um, we're going to take a look at Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 21 this week, which means we're skipping over some stuff. We were in 1 Samuel 17 last week. So let me just catch you up a little bit. So after David defeats Goliath, uh, he returns, um, and as he returns, um, women are singing his praises. Uh, they've come up with this little ditty. It's like he gets his own meme. Um, and it goes something like, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul does not like this. Uh, it makes him jealous. It says in 1 Samuel 18, 9, Saul eyed David from that day on. And in the, in the, in the succeeding chapters, um, Saul is, is so jealous of David that he starts seeking to have him killed. Um, at first, he's kind of sneaky about it. Um, he recognizes that David uh, has shown some military valor, and so he sends him out to do battle with the Philistines, but he puts him in impossible situations. Uh, at one point, he notices that David is interested in one of his daughters. And he says, David, I would love nothing more than to have you as a son-in-law. Uh, I'm willing to give you my daughter's hand in marriage and I won't even ask the normal bride price uh, for it. Just go out and kill 100 Philistines for me. Uh, David succeeds. Uh, the, plot, the plot doesn't work. Saul thinks that David will be killed. 
uh, in battle, but he succeeds, and of course that only increases his legend, makes him even more popular, makes Saul even more jealous. And eventually, he resorts to explicit, overt uh, assassination attempts uh, on David um, there in his, in his court. David's one friend uh, is Saul's son, Jonathan. It's one of the most famous friendships in Scripture, and we'll come back to that uh, later this summer. Um, but it's Jonathan who tells David, uh, finally, uh, for sure, that he is not safe in Saul's court. Uh, and so David has to flee for his life. Uh, and that's where we pick up the story this week in 1 Samuel 21. So if I can ask you to stand uh, for the reading of God's word. And we'll read together the 21st chapter of 1 Samuel. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before him, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you today, uh, it is so good to be able to come before you um, and call you Father. Uh, it is so good to be able to bear uh, before you um, the cares and anxieties uh, that are on our hearts and the hearts of our neighbors, um, to, on the one hand, uh, have this time set aside to set um, our labors aside and to worship you, but at the same time uh, to be honest with you. 
to be honest as we sing your praises, to be honest as we confess our sins and receive your forgiveness, to be honest uh, as we cry out uh, to you for our world. Um, there are many things uh, in our world uh, of which we can be afraid. Um, there are many things uh, in our lives that can cause us stress uh, and anxiety uh, and can cause us to turn inward. Uh, we confessed earlier today that we have this tendency to walk away from neighbors in need wrapped in our own concerns. Now, we have already confessed that and we have already received your forgiveness. And so we don't need to wallow uh, in guilt, but we can be grateful uh, that you know the cares of our hearts, that you know our weaknesses, that you remember that we are but flesh, but that you have sent your spirit uh, to give us new life, uh, to create us in the image of your son, to knit us together as your people, to bless us in order that we can be a blessing to our neighbors uh, and to our city. And so that's our prayer, um, that this afternoon, as we sit under your word, uh, that you would work it into our hearts uh, by your Spirit. And so, Father, um, as I always do, I simply pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so it is kind of a strange text. Um, in one way, the way to fit this text into David's story um, is to remember uh, the psalm that we talked about a couple weeks ago when we first looked at David's anointing. We said then that um, the psalm that really keys into his anointing is Psalm 78, which is this long psalm uh, talking about the many failures of Israel, how they grumble and grumble against God. But finally, uh, he gives them a shepherd. He gives them David. Uh, who leads them um, by a skillful hand. And if you remember, the key question, um, the thing that the Israelites were grumbling about was this question, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Um, and I'll remind you, I'll remind you uh, as often as I can, um, just how wonderful it is that that, that question, and, and of course the implicit answer is yes, he can, that the question is not simply, is God going to bring us out of the wilderness to feed us, but can he spread a table in the wilderness? Can he meet us in the midst of our chaos? Um, David is going to be in the midst of chaos uh, these next several weeks, and, and one way to, to understand this passage is that we're seeing God spread a table and feed him uh, and care for him. Um, we're going to take a look at this. It's not so much three points. There's really one point. <laughs> this sermon is uh, one thing that I want you to see. Um, and that is how this text points us to the fact that Jesus, our true king, uh, is a king who humbles himself in order to feed his people. Jesus humbles himself in order to feed his people. But we're going to look at that in three acts. Not so much three points. There's three acts to this text. The first act is the audacity of the king. The second act is the madness of the king. And then the third act the crazy audacity of the true king. So we have the audacity of the king, the madness of the king, and then the crazy audacity of the true king. Let's take a look first at David's audacity, the audacity of the king. So he's on the run, um, fleeing for his life. He's alone at this point. In the next chapter, he's going to gather to himself, uh, you know, his band of merry men. That's actually, that's a different story. He's going to gather to himself uh, about 400 um, 
young men, um, some of them warriors. Uh, but right now, he's by himself. He's on his own. Um, and so what are his basic needs? Well, he needs food. He needs shelter. He goes just a couple miles away to Nob, which was known as the city of the priests. Um, and there would be reason for him to be worried uh, and for the priests to be worried as he's, as he's coming. And you can see that. Ahimelech comes out trembling, right? This is strange. David is alone. Um, and so Ahimelech asks him, why is that? And David makes up this, this cover story. And then we come to this episode with the bread of the presence, the showbread, um, which is all that Ahimelech has on hand. Um, let's, we're going to pause here and say, what is going on with this? Because this, this story is strange enough, uh, it's notable enough for Jesus to mention it later in the Gospels. Um, you might remember this. So there's a point in the Gospels, um, in Mark it shows up in chapter 2, where Jesus' disciples are passing through grain fields on the Sabbath, and they're, they're picking heads of grain, and they're eating it. And the Pharisees are saying, whoa, 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 you can't do that. That's work. That's work. You can't be working on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response is, he says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar, the high priest, it's another name for the same guy, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also he gave it to those who were with him. Um, what's going on here, um, this bread of the presence, you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 24, um, there are these 12 loaves that are set out in the tabernacle, and it's ceremonial bread. Uh, only the priests eat this bread. Uh, when it's time to replace it, uh, it's taken away, replaced with new bread, and only the priests uh, consume it. It's not meant for ordinary people. Uh, for ordinary consumption. So David should not be eating um, this bread. So, what's going on here? Well, on the one hand, you could say, David is the Lord's anointed. Um, and as such, he understands himself to have special dispensation uh, to eat from this table that God has spread out in the wilderness. But how do we really understand what he's doing? Um, what does this mean for us? Are, are we seeing here a model uh, in David with regard to God's law? You know, is this a model for freedom from the law, uh, from, from the Christian? Um, is the law being set aside, is the question, uh, by David's status? And see, that, that can't be quite right, um, because David um, repeatedly shows high regard for the law. Uh, he wrote Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Um, David has high regard for the law. Jesus also has high regard for the law. Uh, you remember he says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says, uh, Heaven and earth will pass away, but not a single uh, mark, jot, or tittle from God's law will pass away. So neither David nor Jesus can be saying that the law is simply set aside. Um, this is really important for us to know. Um, if you've got Bibles, you might want to keep a finger in Psalm 34. So we're going to flip back uh, and look at Psalm 34 a few times, which is the psalm that David wrote um, out of this episode. And at, verses, um, at verse 11, David says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life? 
and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. See, there's, there's a love there of the law. There's a love there of doing good and turning away from evil. There's wisdom in this. And this is important for us because it's a, it's a counterintuitive wisdom. For those of us who, and it's all of us, really, who tend to think of the law of God as representing a constraint on our lives, um, something that holds us back. It, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a limitation. And the lie that we buy into is that really we would be better off uh, if we were God, uh, if we were our own lawmaker and lawgiver and could decide what's right and wrong um, for ourselves. Um, but David has high regard for the law. Jesus um, has high regard for the law. And so it can't be that the law is simply being set aside. Um, so how do we understand, you know, when Paul says we're set free from the law? You know, what does that mean? Um, I know the youth this summer are studying James, right? Um, James is a really hard book to understand if you think that being set free from the law means you don't have to pay attention to it anymore. Uh, because James tells you what to do a lot. It has a lot of, uh, not just advice, they are commands uh, for how to live your life. Um, how do we understand this? Um, what, what, what is going on here? Well, to understand what David is doing, to understand what Jesus does with this passage as well, you really have to look at what Jesus says uh, the last thing that he says to the Pharisees um, in that episode I mentioned before. So in Mark 2, after he says, uh, after he uh, recalls this story uh, with David, here's what he says. He said to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, I want, I want to stop there and make sure that you heard what Jesus just said. Uh, he says he's Lord of the Sabbath. Um, if David is exhibiting audacity in eating the bread of the presence, Jesus is exhibiting next-level audacity to say that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, Jesus says some pretty crazy things. Um, one of them, another one that involves David, um, he, he poses to the Pharisees a question. He says, so the Messiah is David's son, right? And they say, yeah, David's son. He says, well, then how is it in Psalm 110 that David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How is it if the Messiah is David's son, then why is David calling him his Lord? Just who is this? Implicitly, just who am I? Do you understand? Um, Jesus kind of offhandedly throws out comments like in Matthew 23 when he's um, uh, it's, this, it's, this, it's this series of woes. It's kind of in counterpoint to the Beatitudes. The, the Beatitudes are blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. Matthew 23 is woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees. Woe, woe, woe. Um, and one of the things that he says along the way is, you know, I keep sending you prophets and you don't listen to them. He does not say, I am one of the prophets. He says, I keep sending you prophets. He doesn't say, I'm one in a line. He says, I'm the one that was behind that line. 
When Jesus says that he's Lord of the Sabbath, how can that be possible unless he was there when the Sabbath was put in place? He was there when God rested from his work. He was there for creation itself. And one thing this means is that when you look at Jesus, you have two choices. Um, you either dismiss him as being completely out of his mind or a liar, or you recognize that this person is the center of the universe. Um, this is the creator. Uh, this is God in the flesh. And if he has high regard for the law, then we better have high regard for the law. We better listen uh, to what he has to say. But more than that, if the gospel says that the way that God rescues us uh, is by uniting us to him, to this one, uh, to this one who is not just the giver of the law, but the fulfillment of the law, who's not just our example, but our life itself, then that changes our entire relationship to it. It changes our relationship to the law. What Paul means when he says we're set free from the law is not that the law gets set aside. It means that our relationship to the law is entirely changed. Every other way of relating to God, um, and not even of relating to God, every other way of trying to make it in the world in one way or another always says, if I fulfill some criteria, then I will matter, then I will be accepted. Um, so for religious people, this would mean, if I obey the law, then I'll be accepted by God. The gospel puts that completely in reverse, and it's totally unique in this way. Um, if you think of the Bible as a list of rules, if you think of Christianity as being about obey the law and then you'll be accepted, um, I can understand how you get that impression. Um, the church can give that impression sometimes, but I'm inviting you, pay attention to Jesus. Look at what Jesus is saying. And see that what he is saying is not if you obey the law, then you're accepted, but you're accepted in him. Therefore, you can obey. It's the exact reverse. A relationship with Jesus means that the law is no longer your master and your tyrant. It can be your light. It can be your guide. It can be a delight to your soul. Uh, you can taste and see, Right? So the audacity of the king points us at the audacity of the true king, the one who claimed to be nothing short of the God of heaven and earth himself. Um, let's take a look next at the madness of the king. Uh, by the way, just, just real briefly notice that at verse 7 there's this little bit of foreshadowing thrown in. There's this guy mentioned, Doeg the Edomite. He's just kind of there. Uh, he's going to show up again and be very important and tragic in the next chapter. So it's a little, little bit of foreshadowing uh, that the writer has given you. But let's look at the madness of the king. Okay, so David is still alone. Um, before he leaves, he asks for a weapon, and he walks out with nothing other than Goliath's sword, right? His plan, apparently, he heads towards Achish. He heads, uh, the king, uh, Achish is the king of Gath. Gath is where Goliath is from. So apparently, David's plan was to walk alone uh, into Goliath's hometown, carrying Goliath's sword, uh, and, and not be recognized. Shockingly, this turns out not to work. Uh, he's recognized right away. Um, the people even know the song. They've seen the meme, 
right? It's, it's, it's gone viral all the way to, all the way to Gath. Um, and so, uh, what does he do? Well, notice, notice one thing uh, before what he does. Notice that he feels afraid. Okay, so we're going to see here uh, David deal with his fears. What does he do? Okay, um, well, whenever we're afraid, uh, we have a choice to make. Where are we going to find security? Um, sometimes we talk about fight and flight. Both of fight and flight are a matter of finding security in some place. It's, e it's either a flight away from the situation to some form of security, or it's fight, trust in my own strength to get me through this. What is David going to do? Um, well, imagine if this were a Hollywood movie, right? Imagine you'd only read this far. You, didn't, you don't know what's coming next. I know you do know what's coming next because Luke spoiled it. Um, but imagine you didn't know. Um, and David is walking in and he's carrying Goliath's sword, right? Okay, so what kind of story is this? Well, this is the rise of the king, right? This is, this is the origin story for King David. Um, he's been plucked from obscurity. He had this shocking military victory over, over, over Goliath. Um, at the time, it emphasized that Goliath was huge and had all this armor, whereas David, it emphasized, was very small, so small he couldn't even wear Saul's armor, right? But now, he's walking in and he's got Goliath's sword, and so what you expect is that this is where he's going to prove that he's finally fit to wield the sword, the sword of Goliath himself, right? It's going to be like a scene from Jason Bourne, you know, where they very intentionally, you know, show that Matt Damon, he's not that tall, Right, and so Jason Bourne gets surrounded by like eight guys that are six inches taller than him, and he just turns into this hurricane, right? And, and the last shot is just Jason Bourne standing there with eight guys lying on the ground. Like, that's what you expect. That is not what happens, right? As Luke said, David loses it. Um, he may be pretending, he may really be losing it, it might be a little of each, um, but it says, he, it says he changes his appearance to appear insane. And, and, and whatever he does here, it is humiliating. Like, he is so low, because Akisha's reaction to this, uh, it's basically just disgust. It's just revolt. It's just, get this guy out of here. Like, what, what is this? Um, David is humbling himself. Um, now, Calvin, John Calvin, commenting on Psalm 34 and talking about this episode, had an interesting thing to say, which was that what David is doing um, is actually demonstrating his faith. He said, by feigning madness, sorry, he wrote that David avoided being apprehended by feigning madness, but the psalm proves that he must have been engaged in fervent supplication and that faith was secretly an exercise even when he betrayed this weakness. Now, why would that be? Why would this be an exercise of, of faith? Um, what David is doing um, is he's showing the upside-down way that the gospel prompts us to deal with our fears. Not by running away from them, and not by building ourselves up and counting our own strength, but actually by really entering in, leaning in, to our vulnerability, our need. Um, the psalm does say this. Here's what the psalm says. Psalm 34, 4 and 5 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my, all my fears. 
Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. And then verse 9 says, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Uh, One of my favorite Christmas songs, um, uh, I think it's called Shepherd Song. It's by a band named Ordinary Time. Um, It's got this great line in it. Um, When the shepherds see the angels, uh, they say, it was the fear that drove our fears away. The fear of the Lord uh, that drives away all other fears. David, just like with Goliath, uh, he knows that no matter how weak, how vulnerable, how humiliated he may be, um, the Lord is with him. Uh, The Lord uh, can keep him safe. So we're seeing here these these themes um, that we saw right from the beginning, back in Hannah's song, uh, that God is near to those who are low in the world, um, that God is at work despite the wickedness uh, of, of mankind. Um, David, by lowering himself, has an opportunity to see God fight for him. That'll come in handy later as it builds his confidence uh, in, in this God. So if we've looked at the audacity of David and if we've looked at the madness of David, now let's finally let this point us at the crazy audacity of the true king. See, David knows that he's set apart, right? He can eat bread that's set apart. But we're going to see Jesus setting himself apart in order to feed us. We see David lowering himself in order to save himself. But in Jesus, we see him lowering himself in order to save us. Jesus not only sees the brokenhearted. From Hannah's Hannah's song, you know, God sees the brokenhearted. It's in this psalm again. Psalm 34, uh, 16 says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And then verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But Jesus doesn't just see the afflicted. Um, in Jesus, God identifies with the low. He identifies with the weak. Um, he identifies uh, with the poor. Um, now, again, what, what do we do with this? Um, is David an example for us? Is Jesus an example for us? Do we, um, if we also uh, want to identify with the poor, Uh, if we want to be able to sacrificially give ourselves uh, for those who are low, who are weak, who are afflicted, who are suffering, Um, which the Bible makes very clear that God's people are meant to be marked um, by doing just that. Our God identifies with the poor and the afflicted. God's people also uh, need to uh, identify with them. How do we do that? Um, Again, it, it, it doesn't work you know, for me to just say, well, you just got to try. Uh, you just got to, like, really work hard at it. Um, you really got to look for those opportunities uh, and, and remind yourself. We have to see um, just what Jesus is doing, um, that he's Lord of the Sabbath, that he's Lord of the harvest, he's Lord of this table. And in emptying himself, uh, he is our life. Um, I want to end with a story. Actually, first, 
I want to tell you something strange that a poet said one time that I'll then try to explain with this story. Um, W.H. Auden, uh, early 20th century uh, British poet, um, he said, the slogan of hell is eat or be eaten, but the slogan of heaven is eat and be eaten, which sounds really weird uh, and a little gross. Uh, what on earth is he talking about? Um, so let me try to explain this. Um, in London, there are, uh, there's a couple named uh, Matt and Jen Irvin. They're missionaries, supported by Christ the King. Uh, years ago, we used to send teams to go and do a week of evangelism with them in this neighborhood of London that's predominantly Southeast Asian. Um, it's, like, it's one of these places that, you know, like there are more um, Pakistanis living you know, in, this, in this neighborhood uh, than in Islamabad. Like it's one of those, it's one of those places. Um, so they're, they're in the heart of this, you know, planting churches in the midst of, of this community. Um, on one occasion, the team was, was out and they were in uh, a Hindu temple. And in the temple, there were these shrines set up uh, to different idols. Um, and uh, some of them, the doors were closed. And Matt explained, yeah, those, those are the ones that the god is, is sleeping. Um, the gods need their rest, they understand, and they, and they close the doors. But then the other ones were open. Um, while they were there, a guy in a three-piece suit uh, came up in a taxi, got out of the taxi, came in. He had a quart of milk with him. He, he poured the quart of milk um, over the head uh, of, uh, of Ganesh, one of the, uh, one of the, the Hindu deities, um, in, this, in this shrine. And, and Matt said, oh, he's, he's feeding the god. You know, this is, this is a way of, of sacrificing. It's a way of offering worship. He's literally, he's feeding this god. Um, the guy got back in his, in his taxi, drove away. Later, Matt said, you know, the funny thing um, about this guy, um, I know him. Uh, he's, he's in our community, and I, and I know him. The reason he was dressed like that in a three-piece suit is that he works in the city. Uh, city of London is like their financial district. It's like working on Wall Street. And Matt said, you know, and what that means, like every job in the city uh, is as intense, you know, as every job on, on Wall Street. Right, like you pour yourself into these jobs, and and Matt said, you know, when you think about it, this guy is feeding two gods. Um, on his lunch break, he's he's literally pouring milk over the head of Ganesh, feeding uh, this god. But then he goes back to his work, um, and he feeds it. He feeds his work. He feeds it his time. He feeds it his energy. He feeds it all of his resources. Um, and he just explained, you know, what we're, what we're doing here, of course, is trying to reach out to people um, and, and, and to show them that there's another God. Because, because what Matt said, and this is an important thing to know about idolatry, and not just idolatry with literal figures, but the idolatries of our hearts. When we worship our work, when we worship our money, uh, if we worship power, um, all of the other gods, all of the false gods, demand that we feed them. They have to be fed. Uh, we have to feed them and feed them and feed them until we ourselves are starving. But Jesus is unique among the gods. There is none beside him because he alone breaks his own body to feed us. All, all the other gods will demand that you feed them your very life. Uniquely, Jesus gives his life to feed you. Um, 
what Matt said was, you know, the whole, what we're trying to build here is a community of people whose lives are changed by a relationship to Jesus. And why are our lives changed? The reason our lives are changed when we're united to Jesus, the reason that our lives are changed uh, and the law becomes a delight um, and, and, and care for the poor uh, and identification with those who are afflicted becomes not a duty that lays guilt on us, but a delight. The reason is because we become like what we worship. The Bible says this again and again. Uh, when the Bible says, you know, your idols, they have eyes but they don't see, they have ears but they don't hear, mouths and don't speak, and they have stiff necks, right? And then it tells Israel, you've become like them. And Jesus said, you've become like them. Uh, we become like what we worship. Which means that if you worship beauty, right, which is fleeting, then your life is going to fade like a shadow. It's going to perish like the flowers in summertime. But if you worship the light of the world, then you'll shine with a brilliance that's going to be a beacon to everyone. If you worship power, right, that has to be grasped after, then your life is going to be a clenched fist that can only destroy and can never build anything. But if you worship the stone that was rejected, the one who humbled himself, um, then you will be built as living stones into God's temple, into his people, the same thing, uh, a people that welcomes all. If you worship wealth, if you worship scarce resources, uh, when I was an economist, we always talked about wealth as scarce resources, because economics would be very different if there was no such thing as scarcity, right? Um, if you worship scarce resources, then you are going to be scarce. You're going to be dried up and empty when others depend on you the most. But if you worship the one who offers you living water, then that same fountain is going to spring up in your heart to sate others. You worship the one who said he was the bread of heaven, then you will have resources to feed yourself and to feed others, to feed the poor with abundance, with excess left over. Auden said, the slogan of hell is eat or be eaten. But the slogan of heaven is eat and be eaten. So I don't know about you, but I am ready to come to this table. Let's pray together before we do.